cover actually all of chapter 3 of the book of Ruth. So if you have a Bible, you can open to the book of Ruth. We're going to do it as an overview. Uh, We're not going to get super duper detailed, but we're going to get into some of it. Um, Now, originally, this was not my plan. Originally, we were going to spend two weeks in chapter 3 as part of the eight weeks we had planned for Ruth. But we're going to shorten that eight weeks at least by one week uh, to talk about uh, something that I think is important for us. And I want to hit it on a Sunday which is a Christian view or a Christian framework for war and peace. Uh, And I just want to do that because I know all of us are thinking about that. Obviously, this is a response to what we're seeing right now in Ukraine. And so uh, this is something that I have to say I'm about to be 37. And in my lifetime, uh, we've seen some conflict, but I don't think we've seen an outright invasion like this, or at least not one that I've paid attention to. And so I think a lot of us that are uh, sort of my age and a little older, are, and even a little younger into their 20s, are confronting this for maybe the first time or maybe in a long time. And so I just thought it would be uh, wise to do to help us to think about that. Um, you know, I've, I've been hearing the same news as you, and I've been praying. And uh, one of my friends from our district got sent to South America on a, as a missionary or an international worker a couple of years ago. And when he left, he called me and said, hey, I'm going to get rid of a bunch of books in my library. Do you want them? And obviously I said yes. Uh, And I went and grabbed more books than I needed because that's what you do. And uh, one of those books is titled A Christian View of War and Peace. And as I was praying this week in my office, it just so happened that I was cleaning some things out and I had left that book on the top of a pile of books. And I was praying, you know, Lord, Ukraine and what's going on. And I happened to see it. And I just felt this prompting that like this is something we need to talk about as a church family from this uh, platform, and so we're going to do that at least once, uh, probably in the next couple weeks. Um, unfortunately, I think that the war is going to be going on long enough that it could take us a couple weeks uh, and get there. But I, I still want to do a little bit of work to help us think in a distinctively Christian way, at least a framework. I'm not going to tell you what to believe. There's a bunch of ways to think about war and peace, but I just want us to be distinctively Christian in how we do that uh, because we're being. We're being discipled in a particular paradigm about war and peace every day as we watch the news. Uh, And so uh, we want to be Christians in this world. And so um, that's going to happen at some point over the next couple weeks before Palm Sunday. Uh, But it might might maybe just next Sunday, but we'll see. So for today, we're going to read all of chapter 3 of the book of Ruth. I'm going to read it to us. You can follow along in your Bible. And if you're thinking, my gosh, that's a lot of Bible, well, we're at church, we read the Bible here, that's what we do. And number two, it's only 18 verses or so. So uh, we're going to read that whole chapter, and here's a cool thing, you can go home today knowing you read an entire chapter of the Bible, uh, and and so that's awesome. Now, chapter three, before we get there, I want to set it up, is a chapter that if you've been in the church at all, and I've even alluded to this, uh, and if you've heard this chapter taught before, you might be secretly more interested in what we're going to say about this chapter than maybe the other chapters in the book of Ruth, right? Because maybe you heard the rumors of like, oh, uncovering the feet is a sexual innuendo for something. And I want to, did they sleep together? Did Naomi set Ruth up? Did Ruth entrap Boaz? What's the deal, right? And so maybe you're really interested in this. So as we read this chapter, let me just deflate that balloon for you. I'm not really sure, but probably not. That's probably not what happened. There's disagreement among the scholars, and most importantly, that's not the point of what we're going to get to today. Now, we're going to cover it, so, you know, some of you are like, oh, man, that's why I came today, right? It's, it's an important theme in the chapter. of. It, it's in this chapter, but it, the, what I want to hit on today 
Uh, it's not figuring out the particular innuendo of some ancient Hebrew word that we don't uh, use anymore, right? That's not going to be the point of today, although it's not wrong to study that. Um, there's actually an important central theme in Ruth chapter 3 that I want to touch on, and that's the idea of rest. We've talked about it a little bit already. This is where I'm going to go today. And so we see this at the very beginning of the chapter in Naomi's words, and we see it again at the end of the chapter. And rest is something we all know we need, right? Um, we all are getting back into sort of the rhythm of life that maybe we had before and realizing, oh my gosh, I should rest more. Um, God built rest into our DNA at the creation. Sometimes we get sick and God is like, guess what? You're going to rest a lot for a couple days, right? And so it's a good thing. I would argue a very needed thing, in particular in our culture that values busyness. And we've talked about that a lot. It's a good and right thing to even plan for rest. It's not inherently lazy to rest. That's a lie that our culture teaches us, right? Hustle, no days off, hashtag no days off, hustle hard, all that stuff. And what I'm saying is planning for rest is not inherently lazy. So take vacations if you can. If you can't take vacations, take naps. Okay, rest. You need rest. But there's also a deeper kind of rest that the Bible talks about, that the Bible presents to us. Rest is like the, the end of a journey. It's the fulfillment of a promise, right? The Hebrew word shalom comes to mind. It's the celebration of something that's been completed. And so the promise of, and this is a big theme in the Bible, rest in the land is what sustained the Jewish people, the Israelites, during their journey through the wilderness, like in Deuteronomy. And their entry into that rest, into that land, they celebrated by a feast called the Feast of Booths. So the, the rest that they experienced is not something they achieved in and of themselves, and it was not a reward for faithfulness. Why? Because they were super unfaithful. If you read the Old Testament, they had been anything but faithful in the wilderness time. It's a pure gift from God. That rest from God is a gift to you. And in a similar way to the rest of the Sabbath day, uh, in a similar way that that wasn't just relief from labor, although it was, it wasn't just a stopping of work, it's also an opportunity to remember, to celebrate the finished work of God's creation. That's what Sabbath is about, and it's, it's about his redemption as well and worship. And so the New Testament tells us that that is actually just a shadow of an even greater rest that awaits us when we are with Jesus in his kingdom forever. In Hebrews 4, we see that. We begin to taste this even now. So what we're experiencing now as we gather together as community, um, you know, some of you, especially during a sermon, it's a restful time, right? That was a sleeping joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> but when we gather together as God's people, the church, we experience a little bit of the rest, the contentment, the fulfillment that we're going to experience in the kingdom. This is his invitation, right? He invites us to come and lay our burdens down. And so this is a blessing from God. It's a gift to his children. And in the book of Ruth in chapter 3, it begins with Naomi seeking rest for Ruth. We're going to see that in verse 1. And it ends with confidence that Boaz is not going to rest until that promise is provided. And so we're going to see, though, that the promise of rest in this chapter is actually God working through human means, and he is uh, sovereignly doing what he does, which is who he is, right? He, he provides through his people. So I'm going to read this text to you. I thought about foisting this on one of you right now, but that would be mean. So I'm going to read this text to us 
Follow along in your Bible. I don't have it on the screen, so follow along in your Bible. If you need a Bible, there should be a hardback blue one, hopefully in one of the chairs somewhere around you, or pull it up on your phone, the book of Ruth. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, but whatever version you have will get, get you there. And I'm going to read the entire chapter 3. So here we go. You ready? Yes. <laughs> chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he, will, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning but arose before anyone could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured about six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Okay, so now where we are in this story is that Ruth, or Naomi, excuse me, is now, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, is now energized by the news we found out in chapter 2, that Ruth has met Boaz, and so she now devises a plan to sort of capitalize on the possibilities that this presents, right? She's shrewd. The rest that she seeks for Ruth that we saw in verse 1 is what? It's a marriage life, a home life, children, all of which would bring Ruth into sort of full integration into the Israelite society. And indirectly, this would also sort of rehabilitate Naomi's status as well. And so on top of that, although what we see in, in the text is human initiative, right? The fact that she already saw the Lord's kindness in the direction things have begun to take, suggests that Naomi is confident that God is going to bless her efforts. That she's like, oh, I see God's hand in this, so let me go along with what God is doing. And so this is a really important principle that, you know, take note of. Understand this, that believing in God's sovereignty doesn't, a, a, a right understanding of God's sovereignty doesn't lead to uh, what you might call fatalism or um, just passivity, like determinationism. 
It does, we believe in God, that God is sovereign, right? Spurgeon would say that there's not a dust mite in the air that you see when the sunbeam goes through the, the room that God isn't in control over. So we believe he's sovereign, but it doesn't lead us to passivity. Actually, it leads us in the opposite direction because it provides us with hope and confidence to move forward. And this is what we see in Naomi. She's confident now. Oh, God's at work. I'm going to move. And so the particular opportunity Naomi sees here is presented by this this sort of new stage that's been reached in the harvesting process. You notice it changed from harvest to what they call winnowing, okay? As we move from chapter 2 to chapter 3 of Ruth, if we were watching this as a movie, movie, it would go fade to black, and then it would fade back out, and you'd have the wide establishing shot of the threshing floor. It's a new scene, okay? Reaping is giving way to... Uh, harvest is giving way to winnowing, uh, which brings the threshing floor kind of into focus. So the, just real quick, the threshing floor is likely just a, an area uh, that's been either just stamped down by animals or uh, really compacted. So the ground is really hard or there's a stone uh, floor there. And you also would have wanted to pick a place that had like a prevailing wind because what they would do, what winnowing was, is they would bring the grain, they would either let animals step all over it and, and trot it, or they would beat it, and then they would take that with shovels and toss it into the air, and that prevailing wind would take the lighter chaff. Uh, the, the closest thing I can associate this with <coughs> is eating sunflower seeds or peanuts, right? And you've got the shells, and you've got that like skin on the inside of the peanut that you don't really like to eat, but sometimes you do. It's kind of gross, and you wish you didn't eat it. Um, that stuff, they, when they throw the grain in the air, that stuff gets caught in that wind and kind of blown away. And there's a whole process there. But that's what's happening here. So it's like step two of the harvest process. They've brought it in from the field, and we've seen a bunch of that in, in the earlier chapters, and now they're winnowing. And so the, the men who are working there, the winnowing, it's going to continue into that. Because uh, if you've ever been around farmers or like people who harvest stuff, they don't get to just decide when they're going to work. Harvest season has happened, and we got to get it done. And so they're going to stay for the night, uh, probably to protect the piles of grain they have, but also probably so they can get started right in the morning as day breaks. Okay, and so um, they're going to continue, and so they're sleeping there rather than returning to their homes. And so Naomi knows, she knows Boaz's character well enough to know or to expect that he's going to stay there with his men. We see that in verse 2. And so now she sees this as a perfect opportunity for Ruth to approach Boaz under the cover of darkness, hopefully with with no one knowing, okay? So she's being shrewd here. But there's dangers involved. This is a dangerous situation. And and we know this. I don't send my wife out in the middle of the night to do something. Like, I go, right? It's dangerous. And and it's, it's even more so here. Uh, We even read in the text, Boaz had previously commanded his men not to touch Ruth, which means there were the kind of men that Boaz had to command not to do that, right? There's dangers to her person in a nighttime situation like this. Some of those would be from men, but also there is the risk of scandal. Because if you look at like other places in the Old Testament, like in the book of Hosea, uh, there would have been other kinds of women working at night. Harlots might have been there. And so maybe she could be misperceived. And so in all of this, uh, Naomi is putting Ruth at some risk by telling her to approach Boaz. I would say as an alliance person, we talk about faith-filled risks, 
This is something that Naomi seems to be doing here. And Ruth is going with it. So she's at some risk and she goes to Boaz in this place. But the fact that Ruth is young and she's already attracted Boaz's attention and the signs that Naomi sees of God's involvement are enough for her to say it's worth the risk. Because sometimes following God is risky. And so her plan is shrewd. It's clever. What does she tell her to do? She says, bathe, anoint yourself with some kind of perfumed oil, probably. Put on a cloak for warmth. Why does she tell her to put on an outer cloak? She's going to be sleeping outside and it's going to be cold. So in other words, what is Ruth doing? She's enhancing her physical attractiveness, yes, but she's doing that in a way that's kind of consistent with the impression she's already made on Boaz. And this is where some of the scholarly disagreement starts to happen. She is a woman of good character. That's what Boaz knows her as. So she's not going to go there dressed scandalously. She's just going there. She's putting on her best, right? She's getting ready to like, if you were getting ready to go on a date or something, you would put on nice clothes, get yourself ready and, and go. And so she's then going to go to the threshing floor, find the place where Boaz is laying, uncover his feet, lay down herself and wait until he stirs and tell her what's to do. Now, this, uh, this whole uncovering the feet thing, you could go down a rabbit hole on what that means. Some people say that is a direct innuendo. Are there kids in here? Yeah. Okay. Some people say that's a direct innuendo for other parts of the body. Okay. Some people, which is this is where I lean. I'm not 100% sure though. But where I lean is that this probably means that she literally uncovered his feet. And probably the, the like lower half of his legs. Why? So that he would get cold, he would roll over, and he would wake up. And remember, he has just eaten and drunk until he was merry. Now, that probably doesn't mean that he's drunk drunk, but he's feeling the wine a little bit. So he's going to sleep a little bit better. And so he's probably not going to wake up cold until the very middle of the night, midnight, when no one else is awake. So this is a shrewd plan. It's a bold move. And you can't see it as anything other than an invitation to relationship. It's probably not an invitation to immediate intimate relationship, but it's, it is an invitation into some kind of relationship, into a loving relationship, right? Given what we've already been shown of Boaz and Ruth's character, I think it's too far to see a crude scene happening here. I don't think that's what's happening here. It's too delicate for that. It's not instant gratification that Ruth is looking for. Some would argue that she's trying to trap Boaz, that she uncloaks herself, lays next to him, and when he wakes up, he thinks, oh no, I'm trapped now. I have to do what she says. I don't think that's the case either. I think that Ruth is after commitment. I think she's after marriage, but she's, she's in a position where she's being a little bold about it. So her uncovering of Boaz's feet, I think, is best seen as a way of ensuring that, again, he's going he's gonna to kind of wake up in, in the coldest early morning hours, midnight, and notice her. And so this balances sort of boldness, audacity, but also humility and restraint. This is a great example of a balance, and it's designed, I think, to leave Boaz with no doubt in his mind about what's being asked of him, but without, without forcing him by entrapping him, because that's what she could do. She could entrap him in a way that makes it look like he did something to her that he didn't do, so that then he's forced or else I'll blackmail. And that, I don't think that's what Ruth wants. Now, 
obviously, we, we read that Naomi told Ruth this plan, but it's Naomi's plan. She gets her daughter, her daughter-in-law, and says, here's what we're going to do. But now Ruth also goes with it. And so it shows how Naomi's mind is back, right? She's, she's back to her full self. She's keenly aware of the situation. She's working. She's determined to make the most of this opportunity that she sees from God to give the rest for Ruth that she feels bound to provide, which we see in verse 1. And then Ruth who is Ruth and, and, and is resolute, is committed to Naomi, does what Naomi told her to do. So now we sort of move into verses 6 to 14 where we have this, this quiet conversation. And so she moves to the threshing floor and we kind of have another scene break. Now in, in video world, uh, one of the techniques you can use is called infinite black, which is where you don't light anything, you only light the subject, and you get this look where on video it looks like the person's just, there's nothing, right? It's just black. You've seen this on TV or in videos. Uh, and, and I imagine when I think of this as a movie, this is what the lighting looks like in this scene. It's just Ruth and Boaz. So Ruth follows Naomi's instructions and everything goes according to plan, including Boaz waking up in the middle of the night at midnight when all the men are fast asleep. Remember, they've been working, so they're, they're tired, they're sleeping. But the fact that he wakes... And so it says that he's startled, it could spoil everything, right? If he yells out, if something happens, it could spoil everything, especially when he realizes there's a woman laying here. There wasn't a woman laying here when I went to sleep, and now there is. What's the deal, right? And so somehow, God's providence, maybe a little bit of that wine still in him, whatever it is, he, has the, he, he, he doesn't yell out. And somehow he has the presence of mind uh, to ask a question. Who are you in verse 9? Now, this is one of those questions, if you put yourself in this moment, right, that it, it's sort of a question that has possibilities beyond the meaning of the words in the question. You know what I'm saying? Given the encounter that took, the day, that took place the day before, the impression that Ruth left on Boaz, who do you think he's thinking about as he's falling asleep? He's probably thinking about Ruth, isn't he? Yes, he probably is. That's what I think. I think if he's a regular guy, he's probably thinking about the thing that made the biggest impression on him in the last couple days, which is, which is Ruth. And so as he wakes up and he says, who is this? I got to believe he's kind of hoping for the answer that comes when she says, I'm Ruth, your servant. Now, he didn't expect her to be there. He was startled. But maybe once he realized the woman is laying at his feet, he's like, maybe it's Ruth. And he asks the question, who is it? And she says, it's Ruth. And so nothing would, this is a crazy moment. If you put yourself in a situation, think about the fluttering hearts and the heart pounding, all that stuff that's going on in this moment. This is a very human moment. This is the moment for which Naomi and Ruth planned, right? This moment, it's, it's, it's happening now. And so Ruth did what her mother-in-law asked up to this point. She remained silent until she was addressed. But remember, what did Naomi tell her? Be quiet and let him tell you what to do. And she's like, all right, I'll do it. And then she gets to the moment and he asks her, who is she? And she answers, I'm Ruth. And then she goes on and she tells him what to do. And so she's bold, but she's respectful at the same time. She treats him with honor. 
She says in verse 9, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So she is, she is alluding back pointedly to what Boaz said to her in their previous meeting in chapter 2. He said, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under what? Whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so what she's doing now is challenging him to translate his words of promise into action and become the means by which God answers that prayer, right? What did Jesus say? If you see someone who's hungry and you say, go and be blessed, what good is that? You have to feed that. She's challenging him to do that. But there's a contrast between this scene and the one in chapter 2 because Ruth no longer refers to her foreignness, or the fact that she's not one of Boaz's workers. She, she refers to herself by her name, and she calls herself your servant. So this is, a, this is a way of her being, she's playing by the rules, she's being deferential, but she's also being bold. And she's pushing him to take the next step. She presses even further by referring to Boaz as a redeemer, who is someone who's obligated to help a relative in need. So she's playing by the rules, but she's also being bold. And Boaz, he seems to appreciate this, right? He doesn't brush her off. He doesn't tell her, leave, I don't want to see you, oh, this is embarrassing. Instead, he responds by reaffirming this previous blessing in verse 10. He addresses her. This is the second time since in this book that he's addressed her as daughter. This is a term of endearment, affection. And he reiterates his high opinion of her in the end of verse 10 uh, by referring to her kindness. He said, you have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. We're going to get to this. But he alludes to their earlier conversation in which he, he, um, he commended her for her loyalty to her mother-in-law in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 11. And so that was the first kindness, and that made a powerful impression on Boaz. Why would he, though, take this second gesture by Ruth as a kindness, an even greater kindness? Well, first, there's kind of two levels of this. The first one is that he feels it personally because she's kind of, she, she's kind of answering an unspoken desire of his own heart. Like he want, right? It's that song, I want you to want me. That's, he's like, oh, man. Yes, right? He, he, he wants a relationship with her, but it's kind of been unspoken. And so now that's on the table. But, but then the particular way that he refers to her kindness is really the first hint of what could be a problem. It's a kindness because there were, there are other, other men, other young men who Ruth could uh, you know, pursue, who would know of her fine qualities, right? He said that the whole, basically the whole community knows how good of a woman you are. And so he's telling her that he feels honored that she would come to him, that she would pick him. But in mentioning these other men, he's, he's doing something more because he's underlying, he's doing more than just underlining that privilege he feels. He's also sort of getting her ready to hear the news he tells her next which is that there is one particular man who is closer as a kinsman redeemer than Boaz is. And so he, he's sort of doing that thing where you're like, I'm going to tell you something, but I'm going to kind of tell you in a soft way first and then hit you with it. And so I think that's what's going on here. But of course, Naomi rather than Ruth is the one who chose Boaz, right? 
because it's her plan rather than Ruth's plan, although Ruth is following instructions willingly. And so it's Naomi who's been aware of other possibilities. And we now go back and recognize her words from chapter two, where she says, Boaz is one of our redeemers. And then back here in verse 10 of chapter three, in calling this act a kindness, what is Boaz doing? He's indirectly declaring that he, he wants to reciprocate, right? He's declaring, I, I want this to work. You're being kind by choosing me, which is a way of saying, I'm really glad you chose me and I want to choose you too. And he encourages her to make the choice of him her own choice. And so he puts something in front of her, which she could then say, oh, you know what, never mind. But she doesn't. He says, listen, I, I, I want you to make this choice. I want you to choose me, but I have to make do this the right way. And there could be another person who would be able to do this instead of me. And so I think this is a little bit of, of Boaz wooing her, of telling her the truth. But it also shows us that there's this aspect of his character that we're going to get to in the, in the last chapter of the story. Boaz is noble, but he's also shrewd. And we're going to see that the way he does the dealing with the kinsman redeemer who's closer is very shrewd and businesslike, but also he's doing the right thing. It's similar to Ruth. I'm playing by the rules, but I'm going to play by the rules in a way that is shrewd. And so the scene at the threshing floor is handled really delicately. He handles it really delicately. He is concerned with avoiding any suggestion either for him or for her of sexual misconduct. And so the possibility of scandal exists and it's, it's, it's acknowledged sort of under the surface by Boaz warning Ruth that don't let anyone see that you were here, right? Why? Because then it could be a scandal. So everything has been, been done discreetly, but within the rules. And so the only misconduct which they maybe could be accused of is that they've talked about this relationship before he went to the other redeemer. But even that would be tough uh, to make a case for. And so this sort of whispered conversation at the threshing floor has now made this a really important matter for Boaz, right? It has put a burr under his saddle, so to speak. It's lit a fire under Boaz. I better go take care of this other issue. And it creates momentum for like the opening scene of the next chapter, which we're going to get to. And so this chapter, though, doesn't end in a negative way. It doesn't end in sort of like a gloom and doom way. It actually ends with some confidence and a promise. And so it ends with Ruth returning to Naomi in verses 15 to 18, the end of the chapter. But this time she returns with even more reason for hope than she did before. Remember before she returned and said basically like the next year's worth of food is taken care of. And she had food with her. And so the, the most significant outcome of the meeting she had with Boaz is a promise in verse 13. And, and this is an amazing promise. He says, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. He, he's saying to her, I'm going to make this happen. These aren't idle words. This is a solemn commitment by Boaz to come to the aid of Ruth and rescue her and Naomi by extension from their plight. Remember where they're coming from. Famine, destitute, poor, sonless, and husbandless. And he's like, I'm going to take care of you. But promises are just words. They have to have something 
underneath them. They're only as good as the character and the capacity of the person who makes the promise. And if you're starting to think, gosh, this sounds like a foreshadowing of Jesus or something, you're right. You, you can make a case that Boaz in this section is a Christ figure, right? Boaz is, according to chapter 2, verse 1, a worthy man. He's got resources at his disposal, and everything we've seen of him in chapters 2 and 3 confirms that he is of good character. He's a man whose word can be relied on, and he has both, listen to this, he has both the will and the means to do what he promised. But the promise doesn't stand alone. He gives a sign to confirm the promise. He gives a sign to confirm this pledge that he just made to Ruth. It's, it's kind of like an engagement ring. Now, this might be a weird engagement ring. It's grain. But it's a sign given in anticipation of this promise being fulfilled. Now, this is really interesting to me. He, he tells Ruth to bring the garment she's wearing. And when she holds it out, he pours six measures of barley into it, which it says is enough to kind of fill it to overflowing. Now, Given the way that this is handled, this garment here is, is not uh, Ruth's main item of clothing. It's not her main thing she's wearing. It's probably a shawl of some kind, and this is really important. It's probably the sort of garment that working women would carry their babies in, right? And we see those. Uh, we see those in our, I've tried a couple of them on, those shawl things where you carry a baby. Uh, don't look good on me. So the filling of this garment by Boaz I think is symbolic of something else. It's more than just a convenient way of giving Ruth grain. I think he's also kind of giving her a sign of a promise that he's made to her to give her a family. It's, it's foreshadowing a child that Ruth can now look forward to having when Boaz promised to her is fulfilled. So this is maybe not certain symbolism in the scholarship, but I love it. And I think it it's beautiful here. And so Ruth returns home. She's bursting with good news. What does Naomi say to her? How, how did you fare? How, what, what happened, right? You women know how this goes. One of you comes home and you goes, oh, what happened? Right? That's what's going on with Naomi. And that's all the encouragement that Ruth needs. Because in verse 16, it says, then she, Ruth, told her all that the man had done for her. She spilled the tea. But she particularly emphasized the six measures of barley and the words that Boaz had spoken as he gave this gift to her. He said, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now, it's, there's evidence that shows that Ruth grasped the larger meaning of what Boaz has done here other than just grain, right? Because he's already given her plenty of grain. The expression empty-handed can literally just mean empty. You must not go back empty to your mother-in-law. The same word that Naomi had used to describe her own condition and by implication Ruth's condition as well when they came back from Bethlehem in chapter one. So not only is Ruth no longer empty as she returns to Naomi this time, but neither is Naomi. Boaz's promise to redeem Ruth effectively gets rid of the emptiness of both of them. That Boaz through Ruth, is redeeming both of them. They, they don't yet have the fullness of what's promised, but they have good reason to believe that they're going to have it. That sounds familiar to us Christians, right? We don't yet have the full promise, but we have reason to believe that the promise is coming. 
So Naomi exhorts Ruth in the last verse of the chapter, and the way she does it expresses her, her absolute confidence in, in a way that recalls the very beginning of this chapter. She says what? Verse 23, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for this man will not rest, but settle the matter today. So here's an interesting paradox of this. Boaz's restlessness is the guarantee of the rest that Naomi has sought for Ruth. All she has to do is wait. And so there's kind of two things we want to just take away from this. The third chapter is, 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 a, is, a, is a chapter about longing for rest. Naomi says, verse one, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? This longing for rest is not just physical rest. It's wellness. It's wholeness. It's shalom. It's the opposite of where they came from emptiness and alienation. It's a search for being brought into the family, being included, being provided for, having a future and a hope, having a life that's worth living. It's the search of every one of us. We're all searching for this rest. Some of us can take it too far. It becomes like an obsession for us, but at its most basic, it's a normal, healthy thing. And this third chapter of Ruth has shown us a couple things that are fundamental to us being successful in searching for this rest. The first is initiative. It's the ability to see God at work and to go with him, to see an opportunity when it presents itself, and then having the will to take on that opportunity and not be afraid. There's a good place for, uh, for planning and for risk-taking in this. As you think about your life, God might be asking you to take a risk. And there's a place to plan for that as long as, you know, the boundaries, the moral boundaries that God has created aren't crossed. And we see that with Ruth and Boaz. Naomi sees the opportunity she's been given in Ruth's meeting with Boaz, and she capitalizes on that very, on that, she capitalizes on that the very night that the winnowing has begun at the threshing floor and Boaz is likely to be there. She waits. Boaz isn't going to be as easy to get to. What are you going to do? Go knock on his door in the middle of the night? Sneak in his house? No, this is an opportunity. And so she takes it. But spotting the opportunity is only half of the initiative. There also has to be a plan. And don't think that God doesn't work through human planning, right? He does. He's given us wisdom. And so she puts a plan into action. She, her mind is, is working. She's shrewd. It's bold. And so even this would not have been enough if Ruth was also not willing to take part of the risk. So Ruth has faith in this as well, and she trusts. And so there's this synergy. You see how humans can work together with what God is doing and take initiative, and we see that in this chapter. In the beginning, it's the opposite of the way Naomi was in chapter 2, right? At that chapter, she's passive, and Ruth has to act alone. But here, Naomi's fully engaged. And so we see Naomi back again, sort of recovered. She's broken out of what she was, the grief she was in before, and she's now seeking the welfare of Ruth again, and she's seizing this opportunity. But it's not just that. that that's part of it, taking initiative, and this is a paradox of walking with God. You take initiative, you work with what God is doing, and then sometimes you have to learn to just wait for God too. Both of these can be true. As Christians, we we take initiative, we see what God is doing and we go, but then we also have faith and we wait on the Lord. And, and we see this here. And, and so if, if we're ever going to arrive at this rest 
that we all feel that we have to know when to stop striving and when to start waiting, right? We have, to lear- we have to learn to leave the outcome of our seeking in the hands of the one in whom we're seeking. And so the truth is that Naomi's quest, her, her desire in this chapter, she can have all the plans she wants, but if Boaz doesn't make the promise and fulfill the promise, it doesn't matter. And so there's this peace of mind that Ruth and Naomi have at the end of the chapter that can't be reached if they don't trust in the one who made the promise. And they apparently trust Boaz enough to hold on to this promise. This is the second principle here in this chapter that I think we can see that rest and the way that the Bible speaks of it is fundamentally a gift and we cannot achieve it by striving alone. We can't achieve the rest of God by effort alone. There has to come faith. We have to also trust and wait. And so there's also a deeper aspect of this kind of second idea that emerges when, the, when this chapter is read with the first two chapters in mind. On the road between Moab and Bethlehem, when, when Ruth had been given the opportunity to, to head back, she decides to embrace the God of Naomi in chapter 1, verse 16, and she embraces the God of Naomi and Naomi's people. And in Boaz's words in, two, in, in chapter 2, she takes refuge in the Lord God of Israel. And, and she may not have realized that at the time, but the Lord was making provision, it had made provision in his law for people just like her, right? Naomi, the widow, the poor, and in Ruth's case, on top of that, the, the alien, the foreigner, that by putting herself under the care of this God, she didn't even realize he'd already made provision for her to be taken care of. More than that, there's been hints in chapters 1 and 2 of God sovereignly moving to bring Ruth into contact with Boaz, which is the person that he intends to use to meet their need to fulfill this promise. So near the end of chapter 2, Naomi has clearly shown her awareness of this. She's shown that she's aware of this because she says, may he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. So in other words, behind the promise of Boaz is the commitment of God himself in Ruth's mind to meet Ruth and Naomi's need. She sees God at work through human hands. So to believe the promise of Boaz for Ruth is to, in effect, believe the promise of God and to recognize that even the opportunity to seek the rest of God is a gift from God. And so in its own subtle but really powerful way, this chapter is bearing witness, is pointing to something greater that is at the very heart of what we believe as Christians in the gospel. That Jesus blesses, that God blesses those who seek him. We see this in Isaiah. And the promise of God is... Uh, rest. It's not just rest like we see in this story from social isolation and, and poverty, but it's a rest from spiritual emptiness and alienation from God. That you go from being a foreigner to being in God's family, so to speak, from being an outcast to adopted. And his means, God's means of delivering that rest to us is a redeemer that he has provided. And so there's two things that are necessary if we are seeking the rest of God for us to find it. First is to seek it and to believe that God's promise is to give us this rest. That God, do you know that God wants to give you rest? That he is for your good and he's not 
against you. Jesus summed this up perfectly in Matthew. He challenges us to ask, to seek, to knock, right? This is the initiative thing. And he, and he says in his promise, promise, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so we can seek and we can look, finding many other things without believing the promise of God. And if we do that, we will never find the rest of God. We will never find this wellness, this wholeness by searching elsewhere or by human initiative alone. And so this chapter in Ruth is a really beautiful picture of what it looks like to seek after, for us, Jesus, who Boaz is a picture of here, to seek after being in desperate need ourselves. We seek after this one, and he reciprocates and says, I will rescue you, and I promise to do it. And then we learn to wait on him, because not only does he have the willingness to rescue us, but he has the means by which to do it, and that is what we trust in. And so we find this rest in Christ alone, and the only strategy we need, the only plan we have to come up with is just to come to him. And so we come to him for the first time, and he rescues and redeems us, and we go from not being a believer to being someone who believes. We go from being outside the family of God to being brought into the family of God. But then as we walk with Jesus for the whole of our life, we read these stories in the Bible that he's given us, and we say, I want to come to him again, and I want to come to him again, and I want to believe that he wants rest for me, and I trust in him, and we wait on him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for uh, these stories in your scriptures. We thank you that they are, uh, on the one hand, intriguing and interesting to read, and and we get caught up in uh, the details. But on the other hand, help us always to kind of pull back and see these stories in view of what Christ has done for us, in view of what it means to look to you for the promised rest that you give us. And Father, I pray that if any of us in this room or who are watching us now live or maybe later on, don't know what it means to have our rest in you, that we would come to you and, and that you would fulfill that desire in us by, by us putting our faith in you. I ask that you would make us bold to do that. And we ask that uh, you would allow this, this story to kind of weigh on us this week as we think about what it means to pursue you and your promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.